Here on Houdinki Radio, we've had guests that are actors, we've had guests that are watch collectors, and we've had guests that are watch designers and makers. But we've never had a guest before who's all of the above. Well, until today, that is. Aldous Hodge is a pretty special guy. You probably know him for his career as an actor. He was on Friday Night Lights, he was in Hidden Figures and Straight Outta Compton. But he's also a watch collector and a watch designer. The guy has sketchbooks full of design ideas and technical drawings for new watches and new movements he's dreaming up. And he's also the custodian of one of the only Rose engines in North America. I mean, this guy is deep. I remember the first time we met about two years ago, he walked into our office, got the little tour, and then proceeded to sit down with Jack to talk about Sonia's 19th century treatise on watchmaking for the better part of an hour. For the record, that's not usually how visits to our office go. We've known since launching Hodinkee Radio that we wanted to recreate some of that magic. And during the Hodinkee 10th anniversary weekend in New York City, we were able to make it happen. Just minutes after Jean-Claude Beaver finished his amazing talk on Saturday night, we hopped in a car, sat down in the studio, and poured ourselves some whiskey for a good conversation. We were all still kind of basking in Jean-Claude's proverbial glow, and were ready to get seriously nerdy about all things horological. With Aldous's latest movie, What Men Want, hitting theaters next week, now seemed like a perfect time to air this episode. It's unlike any other we've done before. I'm your host, Stephen Pulverant, and this is Hodinky Radio. This week's episode is brought to you by Bohm and Mercier. Stay tuned later in the show for a look at the Clifton Bomatic Cosk, a high-tech chronometer that offers phenomenal value for money. You can also learn more at bohmatmercier.com. Thanks for joining us, guys. It's a busy, busy weekend we got here, but uh, it's good to get you both in the studio. Absolutely busy weekend. It's a good weekend. It's a great yeah. weekend. Yeah, it's uh, it's really been something. Um, I am not not proud to say, actually, kind of ashamed to admit I had absolutely nothing to do with any of the planning or the logistics. We're talking um, about age ten, yes. by the way. We're recording yeah, this right. uh, on Saturday night. Fresh off uh, almost an hour and a half of pure Jean-Claude unadulterated Jean Claude oh, Beaver. Yeah, yeah, man. yeah. That that uh, he's he's an intense individual. He is an intense and wonderful individual. Yeah. I, yeah. I brought some folks, some friends, not to see my own panels, but mm-hmm. to see Jean Claude Beaver. I said, you know, you not well, being watch people or in the industry, yeah. you'll never get another chance to hear this guy, and you, you yeah. just have to see this human being. For an hour. Don't don't or... lie, you brought him to see you. <laughs> yeah, all right, you okay. So I brought this. them to see me. I'm I'm the the appetizer for uh, guys. Jean Claude goes on at four. Um, be there at nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> don't worry. Don't ask. Don't ask all questions. Right, why? Right. Just, be, yeah. just be there. <laughs> all all right, said, you ever uh, had you ever seen him? Uh, you know, uh, on before? No, no. I mean, interviews online, but I'd never yeah. seen him uh, in person. Uh, never really uh, speak with with such passion and, and ferocity. Um, but I I can kind of tell. I'm like, oh, his pictures make sense now because he always seems like a <laughs> sort of a jovial kind of happy person in his pictures. But you, he's kind of got a spark about life. Yeah. Um, and you know, giving us some of his past and and his some of his experience and what how he had to think in order to get to where he's at. It makes yep. sense. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he had to be as sly and and beguiling and innovative and and just you know uh, uh, humorous as well I think and you know I mean 
<clears throat> one of my one of my favorite things about uh, his uh, you know early days um, when he was trying to find distribution in the U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. You know he was he's very proud of having been a one man dirty tricks department. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Takes yeah. great pride. Spe- speaking here, I think you're talking about the fact that he called Tiffany and said, "We'd love I'd love to take a meeting. I'll hop on the Concord. I'll be there tomorrow." And they were like, "Oh, okay, you're you're yeah. really dedicated." He was already in New York. He was yeah, calling yeah. from a well, payphone. Phone. Yeah, yeah, down yeah. the street. Uh, but so that they would think he was this big man. operation. But that's, right. yeah. that's business, man. It worked. It, it so worked. many people we see floating at the top right now have done things like that, and that's what we call innovation. Yeah. Actually, yeah. I mean, honestly, I think we'd be uh, it would be a much more interesting watch industry if there were a few more people floating at the top who'd done stuff like that. I mean, a lot yeah. of the time nowadays, it's guys who came up through finance school, and you know, they could be working in pharma or selling, you know, candy right. bars. You know, There's a different yeah. passion that's applied to the oh, future yeah. of a company when your beginnings have to be creative. Yeah. 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 And also, I mean, he's a watch guy. Like, I mean, we've yeah. obviously, we've featured him on Talking Watches and other things, but he's he's a watch guy. He loves watches, whereas a lot of these right. executives we interview all the time, they don't, like you said, they don't care. They could be selling that's insane, drugs or chocolate man. or, you know, whatever. It doesn't you, matter. You got to love it, man. It's, I mean, if you're in the business of watches, watch selling, watch making, whatever, if you want to see a real future out of it, I think you have to love it. It's an essential element because otherwise you're not going to be a part of the growth. You're not going to push the growth. You're just going to sit there and sell whatever, you know, get shoveled out. But, man, you got to love it enough to know this is how I want to see it evolve and this is how I want to make it better. You know, yeah. it's a part yeah. of it. I agree with you, and I think over the long term, that's the only way to go. But it's also possible to kind of sell um, mass-produced, mass-luxury goods a, a little bit cynically and mm-hmm. um, you know, still make money for the shareholders from one year to the next. You know, Yeah, so I look at it two, two, two different ways because there is that, which I definitely agree with you in that you can build financial success. Um, but I think in the, in the, in the market of uh, watchmaking, there's two different. There, there is the financial success, which kind of envelops the commercial success of a brand, but then there's also horological success. Right. You know, me, I'm a, I'm a watch designer, very, very novice horologist, uh, you know, and when I study, I'm looking towards what can be contributed, what can I do that can contribute something to the world of horology. Yeah. So. If I make one great watch and only sell one watch, I've still succeeded. I just have yeah. to say, for context, by the way, uh, I think you're um, short selling yourself a little bit. Yeah, uh, I would. I would agree with Jack <laughs> on that one. <laughs> this is this is this is literally the only person who came into the office and asked me uh, if I'd uh, read Saunier. I, so yeah. that that stands out to me. We we were talking ahead of treat us treat us on horology. It's a classic. Yeah, classic. Claudia Saunier. Yeah, um, still still dipping through that. Yeah, um, of yeah. course, George Daniel's book, the. Uh, you know, watchmaking, um, uh, that's the basically the Bible. Um, George Daniels has a book, sort of a thesis, really, on, on escapements. And, and then he has another one on Breguet. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting did, yeah. things about the Verge escapement in that book. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, man, that's, that's how I taught myself because I can't afford the time to – been two three years at Wostep, I would love to, but you know, as also an entertainer, you know, I'm doing a TV show, and they're like, "Look, bro, you got six seven months. You got to knock this down. You can't go right. nowhere." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. was, uh, it's a little hard to shoot from yeah. uh, these Swiss Jura. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. not too yeah. much TV production you know, happening. There. I got I got catching up to do, and I got a lot to prove, man. Can Let we, people not take this seriously. Can we just give people some context? Can we back up and can you tell us a little bit about? 
your career as an entertainer and then yeah. kind of maybe how yeah. you got into yeah. watchmaking and that became a serious part of your life? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, entertainment, I've been an actor since I was two years old. So I've been in the game 30 years now. Started actually here in New York um, with my brother Edwin Hodge, still an actor. Uh Man, went through everything. Sesame Street to Showboat on Broadway. <laughs> you know, died with a vengeance as a kid. And then we came to L.A. to do more TV things. And uh, some people may be familiar with my work from uh, Leverage, which ran for about five seasons, Underground for two seasons, uh, Straight out of Compton, Hidden Figures, Jack Reacher. Um, Friday Night Lights. Friday Night Lights, you know. Uh, all steps through the years, man, um, steps towards the bigger picture. Um, my friend actually asked me tonight, he's like, well, what was your big break in acting? I don't believe in the big break because I see these opportunities that come and you think that it's going to be the big break, but then the reality of it sets in where it's like, oh, I have this much more work to do, right? right. So you just go at it with the mentality that, these are all gradual steps to whatever the bigger picture is. And the bigger picture is always going to be outside of my own um, service. And that I mean, what I'm doing is meant to put me in a position to do more for others than I can actually acquire for myself. Uh, because that is where the big scope is, you know, to be a showrunner, to produce things, to, to, to represent artistically and creatively the areas of culture that are being ignored the people that are being ignored also to create real jobs you know so, so you're that's talking about helping other other people actualize their creative potential is the big picture yeah i yeah. think i think whatever field that you're into i mean we can all service ourselves which is great but if you really want to be dominant in the space of creating legacy and contributing something you have to put the service of others sort of at the forefront or at least make it a conditional part of your motivation um, because that's how you grow personally because you never stop learning but mm -hmm. um, that's how you grow and then that's how you start learning more about yourself than you ever can about others so you know for me I'm, I'm trying to get there but um, yeah you know acting is treating me well uh, next year's a good year three films coming out which I'm, I'm very fortunate to be able to say and then I start shooting my series uh, it's called City on a Hill it's a Showtime series uh, we start shooting that in January so it's, it's a really, you know, life is shaping up well next year, um, 2019. But watchmaking, uh, I was 19 when I started designing watches at Art Center um, College of Design. And that came across because I was into architecture first. Uh, and I couldn't quit acting and become an architect. So I chose <laughs> watchmaking to keep it with me because it satisfied my need for architecture. I still love architecture, but, you know, I could create little small cities within these watches using, uh, well, manipulating movements. So first it was watch design. And then after years of doing uh, watch design and trying to hustle up jobs, working for big conglomerate brands, they put me on the path of independent watchmaking because they said what I was designing and doing was not um, necessarily typical for what they did in terms of mass production. They were like, bro, get out of here. What you're doing is cool. But what you need to be doing, you know, they were very, very kind about helping me set my path. So um, it's a much more difficult path, especially being American in America, where I don't have direct access to the infrastructure, the, the world, the factories, the this and that, you know. So it's, yeah, yeah. it's, been, it's been taking a sweet time. But yeah. um, so Roger right Smith now, was actually talking about that uh, yeah. earlier today. You know, he's kind of he was kind of in the same position. Roger uh, Smith, the goat. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Greatest of all time. Uh, and, you know, and there, and there was in since in uh, England, there was never um, 
a industrial infrastructure yeah. that supported watchmaking. It was a handmade product until it finally, you know, faded out of existence mm -hmm. uh, around the mid twentieth century. And you're kind of and people don't realize it, but in the, if if you are an American, and you're in the U.S. It is extremely difficult to do um, a really, you know, handmade, hand finished, personal design, artisanal watch because the industrial mm -hmm. base is just not there. You know, <laughs> it's I mean, not there. we had. I mean, everybody thinks there was a huge American watch industry, and there was, but it was like three companes. There was Hamilton, Elgin, right, Waltham, and you know, and, and they, IWC. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. Which they are now all acquired by Swiss right. conglomerates. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and when those guys went bust, that was it. There was no, <coughs> you know, the, the industrial base for watchmaking yeah. in the U.S. vanished. So you know, like what, like, like what do you do? Uh, man, well, you pray. Um, no, so <laughs> through the years, I've, uh, you know, like you, you hop on a plane, you get to Switzerland, you meet, you know, the people that you need to meet. Um, the very first watch that I produced was with a, um, a inferior manufacturer. Um, I'll retain that name, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm sure they're grateful. The work that they did, uh, and I say inferior in terms of, uh, you know, just the quality. Um, yeah. It was not the quality I wanted to put out, so I've never shown that watch. Um, I remember uh, I was in a relationship with my ex for five years, and she never saw the wa watch once in five years. Wow. Yeah. I was so you kept it really tight to the vest. Really yeah. tight. Yeah. My, yeah. I think my mother's seen it like once. Um, <laughs> it's just not what I wanted to put out. I could have, but it's not what I wanted to put out. I was like, let me do it right. So then over the years, met a lot of great people and finally landed on meeting the manufacturing partner I have now and sort of a dream for me because I admired their work for quite some time. And when I sent them a concept design, I didn't think they were going to take me seriously. So, you know, I sent it to, to one of the co-creator, co-owners of, of the company. And um, he actually hit me back. And I was like, uh, what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> all right, well, let's get the conversation started. So, uh, you know, we met. Uh, some time after, you know, we, we'd been talking online, but we met some time after he uh, saw my whole portfolio and um, looked over what my vision was. And he said, all right, you got potential. You understand watch design, things like that. You know, work on this, work on that. But how about this? Let me, you know, try to help, you know, work with you, help you strategize. And then when you're ready, uh, we'd like to work with you in terms of manufacturing your product. I was like, hell yeah. So right now I'm holding on to that because, um, there are other places I can go to get the work done cheaper. I don't really care about money, though. I care about the quality that I'm going to give customers. I want to give them the vision I see in my head so that when it lasts, because this, this is built to outlast me. I'm not, you know, you know, 100 years from now, I still want you to see the first watch that I made and be like, God dang, you know, like, damn, you know. Um, and I'm supposed to be handing this down to my kids, so I need to hand them something substantial, real foundation. That's right. a part of the whole point of building a company. Um, so for me, I'm willing to be patient enough to get it done right, willing to sacrifice what I need to get it right. There's a, a watchmaking community spread across America, not all hold in one place, but some great guys here in New York and Connecticut, some great guys that I got out in, in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. um, some even, even in the Bay Area, San Fran. Like, you know, we spread out, but we here. It's just it'd be it would be a massive effort, um, primarily financially, to establish in-house manufacturing here at the level that I'd like to achieve. So over you know maybe over twenty years, fifteen to twenty and, years, and I could have. When you talk about you know your watch and and you're designing it, I want to make it clear to people like you're you're not. 
taking a movement from an eBosch manufacturer and you know putting a different case around it. Like you're designing a watch from the ground up. You're designing a movement. You're designing a case. You're designing a dial. You're you know going really. You talked about being inspired by Daniels, but like yeah. you're you're making a watch. I can't show pictures of that book, but that's my Bible. Yeah. So I design everything. I even design my presentation box, but hands, logo, straps, case, dial, movements, uh, different pieces of the movements like my barrel, my escapement, all these things that I would love to eventually produce one day. But um, right now, you know, that is the eventual goal. But I have to learn all these things because I cannot do them all. I'm a watch designer, a movement, uh, a composition theorist. I have to put people in the positions to know, of course, more than me in the space. But when they get it done, you know, I can know enough to know that it's getting done right. You know right, I mean? right, right. So here's a question for you. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, people who know you from your public persona, people that you meet professionally. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, when I first got interested in watches, this was back before there was a watch internet, and the magazines were on the newsstand next to the doll collecting the model railroad magazines. Right. And, you know, back then, if you were a guy who was interested in watches, you really had to, like, explain why you, or, you know, you had to try to explain why you were interested in this, like, you know, really like super weird hobby why are you interested in this thing yeah yeah this so, weird thing so yeah. specifically this, this like yeah. super weird thing and uh you know like somebody like you who has t i mean you've taken a a really 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 deep dive and made a i made a i made a real you know sort of life commitment i'm in there yeah yeah to building something that has historically it's never really existed in the united states so you're a pioneer in that respect so what happens when people find out about this aspect of your life are they like all this man why don't you just like concentrate on the stuff you know works well yeah so many different things um most people like to uh reserve their idea of me or the limitations of me to what they know they're introduced to me as an actor and that's fantastic right. i love acting i'm gonna still die an actor you know at yeah. like 105 years old in the director's chair but wearing the watch that i made yes um <laughs> uh most people it's hard for them to wrap their brains around the idea that somebody can be proficient or as passionate equally passionate about faceted uh interests right, right. so when it comes to uh, a multifaceted interest. When it comes to, to acting, it's simply an art to me. The same as watchmaking, the same as painting, the same as automotive design, architecture, all these things I'm into. They're just different conduits for execution said art. So when I'm uh, executing said art, when I'm acting, that's an emotional art. When I'm uh, designing, that's, a, that, that's a sort of an aesthetic art. When I'm dipping into watchmaking, that's a scientific. Mm -hmm. You know, they satisfy different things in me, but, you know, me, I, I grew up between New York and Jersey, a little poor kid in Jersey, and a lot of cats thought I was going to be less than my potential. And, and a part of what I'm doing this and why I needed to be an engineer of some kind was to defy the negative, ignorant stereotype that intelligence and intellect and value was not closely associated with black and brown skin. It pisses me off that it stay. It pissed me off when I was eight years old. I was like, yeah, yeah. pardon my language, I was like, fuck all y'all. <laughs> I'm going to do it. Because of the fact that this is normal for my culture, but I've always stood up against people who treat me as though I'm some uh, anomaly. It's one thing to be surprised that I'm an engineer or a watchmaker because maybe I'm American and, or maybe I'm an actor. Yes. It's, yeah. it's insulting to be surprised that I'm black. Right. And, and, and that pisses me off. So... Um, 
there's that element, but also outside of defying people's perspectives, I never wanted to have my work associated with entertainment. Uh, my name is Aldis Alexander Basil Hodge. So at first my company was called Basil Timepiece because it is a family name on my father's side. All the men have it in their name, um, passed around, passed down traditionally. And I was like, still carries the weight of legacy. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't want people to associate my efforts getting into watch world with being an actor who just wanted to slap his name on a product, right? right, right? right. Oh, you're a celebrity. Like, I'm not a celebrity. I don't know what the hell that is, but that's not me. Like, that's not my job. I'm not in the business of celebrity. I am an entrepreneur and a businessman. However, um, some of my associates who happen to be namesakes of their own brands, um, very successful independent brands, all counseled me to possibly just consider changing it to my surname saying you know mm -hmm. hey put aldis hodge on there because when people see the quality it will be synonymously linked to your name but people right. will understand it then and right. i said all right you know so i didn't want to work against myself in the marketing at first but um i just you know kind of stepped outside of that preconceived notion of fear and said it is what it is and i actually like the way it looks on uh my uh my watch now <laughs> so there's got to be a sense of pride right like you, yeah. you look at this thing that came out of your brain and it has your name on it yeah, like there's yeah, there's yeah, a really yeah. natural kind of human instinct that 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 feels good Aldous, yeah, let me yeah. backtrack a little bit um to something you, you you said a few minutes ago there's uh negative stereotypes <laughs> based on race based on gender based what? on where you come from yeah. no. wait what jack <laughs> <laughs> so what do you there's, mean? <laughs> there's, there's a uh, uh, there's a there's a sub narrative that goes along with that, and the sub narrative is: isn't it cool that you've achieved what you've achieved because you wouldn't have actually worked that hard if there weren't negative stereotypes for you to overcome? Right. Is that true, or is that also possibly just total bullshit because it actually just makes things harder? I'm not sure. I think uh, I've had that conversation before, and to a degree, that perspective may justify people living in an unnecessarily hard environment or existence, whereas, you know, they shouldn't have to. I mean, in this country, especially the idea of equality is the most terrifying idea or notion to so many people. Say that again, the idea of... <laughs> the idea of equality is yeah. so terrifying mm -hmm. because there are so many people who grew up with the actual realization of superiority being their concept of equality. So when equality starts raising up for other people, they feel threatened because they're like, wait a minute, this is different. Like, no, 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 you, you get to eat too? No. And it's yeah, like, they're, they're, like, they're like, yeah, I meant equality, but I didn't right. mean equality, equality. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't mean that. <laughs> and you're like, you mother. So uh, you look, uh, stepping into the horological world is, is difficult for all intents and purposes, <laughs> just from the perspective of, of engineering. Like, right, right the math there's so much first of all most people don't realize as as a as a watchmaker um you have to be a, a, a have some sort of proficiency with when it comes to understanding physics chemistry metallurgy uh micromechanical engineering now i'm not 100% proficient in all of these these trades um i do have machines i've played with making some parts here and there before but my primary knowledge is vested in design and uh, movement composition and manipulation so right. um 
that's difficult enough to learn that on your own. Then you, you have to couple that with the fact that you need the, the investment wing of it to, to fund something that may or may not possibly get, uh, uh, will produce uh, revenue. But it's not like you're going to spend $20 on a prototype. You're right. closer to 2000 or depending on what that is, 20000 or 200000 or you know, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, my... R&D costs are exorbitant. They're insane. But I don't care because it has nothing to do with that. It, 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 that's not why I'm motivated. It's, it's about there's a dream, and whatever the cost is, I will earn that, sacrifice that for whatever to achieve the dream, um, which is where I'm at in you know, my current stage now with my brand is you know, raising yeah. capital. Yeah. So, that, so doesn't, that doesn't phase me. But the, the inequality... Um, and uh, as it presses into uh, the unfairness or the hardship of um, of a certain ordeal of trying to get into to you know this business or whatever, it's just uh, unnecessary static. But you you make it necessary by using it as as motivation, use it as energy. Mm-hmm. Um, as I stated earlier with with my previous question this evening, I do think that I've learned that there's always an opportunity in in the idea of loss or deficit. When you think mm-hmm. an opportunity is gone, if you lost something, what like don't most people spend their time focusing on what they think they've lost, which is why they can't see the opportunity that's right in front of them. You know, yeah. think of like the doors yeah. closed. It's not true. It's, that's never true. Doors are revolving when it comes to the universe, how it speaks to you in life. You know, I've been fired from jobs on TV where I was like, damn. And then I realized months later with the next job, I'm like, oh, this is why. God wasn't taking something from me. God was moving something out of my way so I could walk my straight, narrow path that yeah. I need. You yeah. know what I mean? Get me yeah. the, to where I need to be faster, even though it looks like a setback. Yeah, you know? Stephen actually said something to me. Uh, uh, we, we we were talking about um, meetings a few days ago mm-hmm. um, and saying yes to things and saying no to things. And uh, he said that it had occurred to him, um, and I thought this was a super interesting observation, <clears throat> that um, the problem with saying yes to uh, a meeting or a commitment or an interview or whatever it is, that that becomes something that's set, but it also closes off the infinite number of other possibilities that could exist in that space. <laughs> True. And, and to I, be fair, this idea is from our from, friend and Hodinkee radio guest, Jason Freed. This yeah, is yeah, not yeah, my yeah, idea. So, yeah. Jason, I'm really sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm not taking credit for your I'm idea. No, no, no. Sorry, but, your jewels. Yeah. 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 I did not steal your idea. But I thought that was uh, I thought that was a really interesting, um, you know, a really interesting observation, you know, uh, to your point. Right. Um, it looks like, you know, if, if a door shuts, that shuts down one thing, but uh, the universe is not just one thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I uh, also... For, for those who can't see what we're doing, I'm handing off my uh, phone to show 3D renderings of my watch. So if you hear random things in the background, that's what that this is. This is yeah. amazing. Thank you. Can we, can we talk about these? Uh, a little bit? I, I will say what we can say about them. All right. Uh, All right. So um, the two that I'm prepping for my flagship models, one is a Turno... Well, not exactly a traditional turno case. Maybe a turno shape that I've modified and it has um, uh, jumping indications. I can't say which, but uh, the second one is a round case shape, uh, chronometer, offset indications, offset hours and minutes with... um, well, I can't say that yet, but <laughs> <laughs> with, with some other stuff, too. Uh, when, look, when I can make things public, I will let you know as soon Absolutely. as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, those, yeah. Are, those are the angles I'm working at right now. And um, 
it's hard, man. It's it's designing is is tough because you're trying to basically. It's almost like reinventing the wheel. Like how much can you do that hasn't been done, attempted, or whatever to some degree before? But what it becomes is it's wild. It, it's a test of finding out what your true relationship with yourself is because mm -hmm. you have to know your DNA well enough to put it and infuse it in something. And most people will tell you along the way, "Oh, this is cool. This is not cool. You should do this. You should do that." And I've run across that where I almost gave up on these projects because somebody's like, "Well." You know, it's this, it's that, or it won't sell, it will sell, or there's this that looks like it. And, you know, whenever somebody tells you no um, or gives you advice, which I do take uh, with all respect, any sort of constructive criticism, I take it to heart. But it's also, it's a moment for you to test your own potential. In that space, are you going to allow somebody else to tell you, to make you think no about something you fervently believe in? Um, if the no comes off of somewhere that actually advances you, uh, if, if the no comes from, from a position that would help you excel and you feel in your heart it's the right thing to agree to, then do it. But if the no makes you question and makes you hesitate to say, I understand the no, but I don't know about this and I still like it and da 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 If you love it, if you love it, do it. There is no other answer you or, or validation you need because guaranteed when it comes to art, take 100 people in a room, say 50 people love it, 50 people hate it. If you're developing something and you meet the 50 people who hate it first, those 50 people who will love it will never have had the chance to even get to see that piece of you. Yeah. So you have to take it all with a grain of salt and just... Whenever anything like that happens, whenever that conversation comes up, you got to search your soul and say, well, do I still believe in it? And if the answer is yes, still attack it, still, still accomplish it. And now a look at this week's sponsor. One of the things that makes Bowman Mercier's Clifton Bomatic Cosk such a special watch is the movement inside. The Caliber BM13 is new for this year, and it's a high-performance movement built to be both precise and reliable over time. To do this, the BM13 makes use of a special silicon escapement, a single power barrel that's sized for optimal efficiency, and a new type of lubricant, all of which adds up to a caliber with five days of power reserve. Additionally, a chrome ring shields the movement from magnetism up to 1500 gauss, alleviating one of the prime culprits of poor timekeeping. The Clifton Bomatic Cosk promises performance of minus four plus six seconds per day and won't need any service for at least five years. To learn more about the Clifton Bomatic Cosk and the entire Bomatic collection, visit BowmanMercier.com. All right, let's get back to the show. There's a, a photographer who I know, who I heard, he, he was on a podcast the other day with Hypebeast. And uh, he was talking about the, the culture of social media. It's this guy, Stephen Venasco, who's, who's an amazing, amazing photographer. I'm a big, big fan of his work, and he's a super nice guy. There you go. Um, and uh, Stephen was saying that, you know, we're so looped into the, the currency of likes and things on social media. Yeah. And we always think about volume. It's about how many likes can something it's get. Addictive. And people say like, oh, well, you know, uh, I put this photo up, and it only got 500 likes, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull it down. Yeah. Put 500 people in a room and see how that feels. Like, exactly. We, we think of this as such an abstract thing, but in, in actuality, like you don't need 20,000 people to think something is, is interesting yeah. for it to be valuable. Yeah. Like, if our, it impacts uh, five people, 10 people, 100 people, 
that's a lot of people for, yeah. for a piece of work to impact. It's also, I mean, one of our uh, <clears throat> one of our other guests uh, today, um, Mr. Alton Brown, was talking about somebody asked him um, at the end of the conversation um, that he had with us. Uh, you know, what do you think has changed about food culture? And he was talking about Instagram. He said, you know, it's a it's a really weird thing. Uh, people put pictures of food up on Instagram all the time, and nobody nobody really cares how food tastes anymore. Right. Just, <laughs> how does it all, look? It's all about right. it's all about how it looks. It's not pretty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've heard from um, there's a the Italian designer Brunello Cuccinelli mm. um, has you know said several times that he thought this year's Petey Woma was uh, he sits the worst he's ever seen. Everybody dresses like a clown because they're just dressing for Instagram. Jeez, you know, nobody yeah. nobody has like you know. Well, you know what's crazy? <laughs> I think that. Social media has definitely shifted the way we communicate with ourselves and uh, with others. We, we verbally communicate with others and think of others differently. We spiritually connect with ourselves much differently than we would if there was no lens to compare, you know. Yeah. Um, and when what most people compare themselves to is, is false, falsified. We see somebody in a moment, they could be crappy, feeling bad all day, and they take two seconds to take a snapshot where they're smiling. Oh, my life is great on Instagram. You look like you out there balling, right? <laughs> but um, I think the way people have used social media is a reflection of them. So I wouldn't say that social media has been inherently responsible for the damage uh, that has been done. It's sort of revel a revelation of how people um deal with themselves and deal with others you know you cannot blame the substance for the addiction if you can you have the power to say look i'm gonna stop this thing and when it comes to to what people think of themselves that's where i think the the majority of the damage is done because now i have to do this da, 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 in order to look like it to get these likes to get you know there's when people first get on it's like two likes is great but then after a while if you're used to a thousand likes you get 500 you know like you were saying on on a picture and it was like oh man what happened but you know like you much to to your point 500 people in the room you can feel that energy and you yeah. can feel how how powerful that is i just did a stage play reading where there was like 30 people in the room that was still powerful because those 30 people we felt that and what social media does is it replaces experiences with the idea of an experience with the illustration yeah. of an experience yeah, yeah. and yeah. it's, it's do an you illusion. find that impacts you in in your art i mean you said you did a stage reading and there are 30 people there yeah do you find that whether you're acting in a play or whether you're um you know in a movie and you you get to see people experiencing the film the fact that people are, are like constantly distracted and looking at things and even if they're not looking at something while they're watching the film yeah. you know that as soon as it ends they're pulling their phone out they yeah. barely silenced their phone before the movie started right. yeah. Yeah. Does, does it impact how you as an artist express yourself knowing mm. that people have all these other kind of like inputs going on constantly which uh first of all you brought up a pet peeve of mine look if you go into a movie and your phone rings what are you doing fam? <laughs> what is wrong with you like take two seconds to put it on vibrate i can't and then some people have the nerve to answer the damn phone and have oh, a conversation man. yeah 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 i'm in i'm in the movies right now nah 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 he just broke out not nah, the building blew up yeah 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 yeah, all right, I'm going to hit you like, spam. <laughs> shut up, like, come on, you know what I mean? Um, I don't understand that. But as far as it impacts me, I try to not, I, I try not to be consciously aware of someone else's experience of that which I do. And, and the reason is, 
as much as I can appreciate someone who appreciates my work, and I love that, um, it's not my job as an artist to engage whatever that means for them. You know, when I watch a film, it's going to mean something different to me than it does for somebody else. I was there. I was shooting the thing. I'm looking for different things. You know, you're looking for an emotional experience. I'm looking for that, but also technical things. I'm looking for growth. You know, I'm looking all these different things. But it's the same reason why you should not ever read reviews. A good review can be as damaging as a bad review. And I don't discourage reviews. I think they're necessary in this space, but it is not our job as artists to allow to read those reviews because it's going to sink into you and what you do. And you're going to change what you do, how you do it based off of the idea of appeasing someone else. But that's the same in the watch world. You cannot make watches for customers. You have to make watches for the intended purpose of the brand's DNA, the spirit of the brand and the people who support you are going to come. But you cannot ser possibly service everybody or else you have no brand. You have no identity. So yeah. here's the question. Here's, mm -hmm. here's, I mean, I, I agree with you. Um, you know, that's on, a start. On, on our side. <laughs> hey, yay! We got you. You got Jack on your side. Yeah. You're set. <laughs> you know, on our side of the uh, on our side of the equation, we're 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 the reviewers, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So, what do you think a reviewer's job should be? I mean, I I have my own ideas about uh, you know what we should and should not be thinking when we re when when reviewers review anything, whether it's a film or a mm -hmm. watch. Um, but what do you, what do you think the orientation should Man, be? Man, fuck the reviews. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, no, I'm kidding. Well, we're both fired, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the show. <laughs> so here's the thing I think about reviews. When when it comes to reviews, I think the responsibility on the reviewer is is honesty because you are. If you know your audience, you can't take responsibility for everybody. But if you know your audience and you know what you're doing and what you're saying and how you're saying it, I think there's a responsibility to understand you are setting a tone and teaching people how to think about something or experience something. So in the case of, you know, merchandise, you know, particularly, uh, we can talk about watches. I think that having a, a candid, open review is is necessary because you should not pull punches. But being honest is not this. It's it's about how you do it. It's not the mm -hmm. same as being um, negative, for negatively, the sake of being negatively. Uh, negatively accusatory or, or demeaning. You know, it's 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 none of these things. And I think that's where sometimes reviewers take their liberties. Uh, this sucked because of that. Da, 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 da. Like. You know, hey, there's this product. This is what I think is good. This is what I think is not so good. Whatever. What do you think? If you're this kind of person, da da da. You know what I mean? But mm -hmm. sometimes, and you know, I can speak primarily from you know film reviews. You know, people, it, it it'll mess with people, man. When 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 reviewers get get too too personal, and I think at the, at the core of it, it's like. Yeah, honesty has to be there, but you're still doing a job at the end of the day. So is your job to educate the world and open up the, the eyes of people, or is your job to destroy certain people's efforts, right? And, and, and right. sometimes people don't make the distinction, and that's where it gets a little dicey because, you know— I know me. I'm coming to the table thinking I know this and I know this, you know, know, know this and that about a certain subject. But I want to I'm interested to see somebody else's opinion. And when I can get a good quality, educated opinion, personal review that allows me to 
say maybe I'll look at it from this perspective, but at the same time, I can still own my own opinion and not feel bad for it. Right, right. I can rock with that. But sometimes you'll like something and somebody else will be as terrible, da, 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 and if you like it, you suck too. Like, yes, fall yes. back. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. what is going on in your life yeah. <laughs> that you need to shut people down like mm. that? Um, yeah, you know, uh, uh, feelings are not facts. I think people forget that yeah. sometimes. Yeah, exactly. That's true. And I'm okay with feelings so long as you're honest with yourself and with your audience and saying, look, I'm a little bit emotional. I'm in my feelings right now about right, this. Right. So let's discuss it. Because then you can have a, a human conversation that is, um, there's clarity. Where people coming to reviewers think that you do this all day. You review that you know the best of the best out there, this, that, and the other. And sometimes your feeling will be taken as professional grade fact. Right. Yeah. Because you have not expressed that. Or as an endorsement. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah. And you're saying, regardless of what I've been through, what I know, what I've experienced, da, 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 regardless of how much I may know about said product, at the end of the day, this is just how I feel. I'm not saying this is a professional opinion, a technical opinion, da, da, da. this is a personal opinion. Because not everything is going to speak to your soul. That doesn't mean that it's not good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, t we talk about two things all the time on our end because this is something we struggle with genuinely. Right. Uh, Aldous Hodge and Aldous Hodge. That's it. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. that's, all, that's all, all we say. <laughs> Look, I know, uh, man. I know. It's, it's all right. We weren't going to blow your spot up. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we, we talk about uh, respect and responsibility. You know, it's two really basic mm. things. One, right. I, I had a professor in, in grad school who told us, you know, in an arts reviewing class that if you're going to talk about something being bad, it needs to be bad in an important way. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just punching down. Like, there's no there's no reason to trash something if it being bad it's doesn't a little, matter. It's a little easy. I mean, it's, it's, it's easy. It's a little it's easy. Lazy. It's a little easy to mistake negativity for authenticity. Yeah, it's, and uh, it's not. And it's 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 awfully easy to be funny at somebody else's expense for a right. short term mm. laugh. But you know, and what are you really? If adding? you're reviewing something, mm. it needs to be something that at the base base level is you, you're approaching it from a respectful standpoint. It needs to be something that you think is sort of culturally valuable enough that mm -hmm. you need to give an opinion in the first place. If that, if you don't respect it enough to think that mm. people need an opinion on it, then don't yeah. review it at all. And the yeah. other thing is, is responsibility. And, you know, we've, we've had this before. We hear from readers that they buy watches because we give them good reviews. Yeah. And we talk about this, like, if we say a watch is great, like that day, somebody is going to go out and spend five, 10, 20, a hundred thousand dollars right. because we said it was good. Mm -hmm. And we need to make sure that if somebody does that, we feel good about yeah, and that. It involves right. some personal sacrifices. Yeah. You know, sometimes. And, now, and, I think I think the thing with that there, though you may be responsible and understand your influence, um, if somebody spends that money, they can't blame you. Because they still made a personal choice. <laughs> I, I, I hope they don't. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, I mean, they Hodinkee can. made me. Didn't know you. You still you, made that you choice. Did that. Yeah. Hodinkee did not swipe your credit. I card. sadly do not have all of our readers' <laughs> credit cards. But uh, yeah, I want to. I want to dig into your personal watch collection a little bit. I mean, we we okay. can't. We're a little limited in what we can talk about about the watches you're designing right now. Yeah, but yeah. I think maybe we can give people an idea of the the Let's sorts of it. things you're into through your own watches. So I'll tell, you, I'll tell you about what I have, and then I'll tell you about what um, I aspire to have. Um, I do have this uh, wonderful beast, this Arnold and Son Golden Wheel on my wrist right now. Mm -hmm. I have a Gerald Genta Octobi Retro. I have a Bulgari. You have um, an Octobi Retro? Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Only like real watch nerds Old have school, that watch, man. man. I'm talking yeah. about enamel dial with Gerald's name oh, on it. Oh man, man. Um, I haven't even seen one of those in a long time. Oh man, next time we come out, yeah, I'll show you. Do. Please, do. I should have brought it. Man. That's a cool. Yeah, it's, that's it's, a, oh man, yeah. that's a super cool watch. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, I sent it to get service. It took them a year to get back to me. I, I was like, come on. I do have a Jeselu Coutre Reverso. Papillon Viager from uh, Bulgari, i.e. the Daniel Roth edition. I do have a Daniel Roth coming to me. This is a uh, tourbillon. This is a real uh, old-school Daniel Roth. I have mm-hmm. a uh, black ceramic Jacques Edouard Grand Second. Uh, <laughs> I have a, a Mont Blanc Nicolas Riesec, which is wow. one of my very first large purchase acquisitions. Um, but in this space, I mean, I got a couple of hitters. I, you know, I... I would love to own anything from Grubel Forsey. I would love to own anything from Garywood Lennon, FB Jorn, MBNF. I have my particular eye on the Legacy Machine series. I don't care which one, just anyone. Um, I do think with uh, FB Jorn, my eyes on the Tobion Sorain or the Resonance. Uh, Grubel Forsey, anything, I don't care. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a, yeah, I mean, it's I have, kind of a no-brainer. I, have, I kind of have, like, look, the signature one is a beast. I love the uh, 24 Seconds Contemporain. I love uh, the Double Balenciere. But the thing is, I don't really like to speak on, in terms of Grubel Forsey, I don't like to say, oh, I love this, love because then it's like, well, what don't you love about the others? No, I love everything they make. Yeah. You know what, what, what is it about Grubel Forsey that you love so much? Because of the architecture. They think the they they make what i think when i think about design right um it's a perfect synergy between uh mechanics and architecture and you know with the exposed gearing it's not a it's not a skeletonized watch it's very different skeletonized is when you take uh, a base movement and you carve out the base plates right so you can expose movement underneath they build you know their little architectural you know structures right um and it's it's the perfect sort of uh, homogenous relationship for me in my mind when it comes to engineering, architecture, art, and and, and watchmaking. Right? But it's a funny thing. We don't have um, – you look at the history of mechanics and, uh, you know, there was a time when making a machine and making a beautiful machine, these were mm-hmm. not – diametrically opposed goals you know right you 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 were making a machine it was natural to try to make it a beautiful object as well because the idea that there was a difference between the two sort of it just wasn't part of how people think and then at some point mass production comes along and Mm. you can make something that is ugly as hell and has absolutely no aesthetic appeal whatsoever in a conventional sense but it works really well so there's there's uh the different there's there are two very different mindsets set in there and um i think that they need um to find a cohesive relationship quite more often because the golden rule of any design foundation is that form follows function. And sometimes people focus way too much on form that they're willing to sacrifice in terms of function. But look, if you don't know how to make it work well, then you don't know how to design it well. Um, But at the same time, it has to be aesthetically beautiful and appealing to the eye. Um, Most people have, and I say most people just in my personal council of engineers, have the constant discussion of like, okay, most if you're trained as an engineer fully, sometimes you kind of lack the design taste aesthetic. And then sometimes designers who don't understand the mechanics will design something, you know, really interesting and cool to look at, but it would work like crap. 
right. <laughs> you right. know? And um, that's why I think, you know, you have to, especially why I try to learn the way I learn, you have to have a command of both the mechanics and and, and the the beautiful, yeah. the, the idea of beauty that you're trying to achieve because they, they complement one another. They they don't, one doesn't survive without the other one. So I, so then getting back to your own designs, I mean, you know, we're not going to talk about specifics, but mm. you're actually trying to do something that is purely from an engineering and a technical standpoint, a little bit difficult to do. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> you are trying to, um, you're not trying to make an object that is pretty to look at. You're trying to make something that expresses the beauty of machineness. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. you said earlier that you've experimented and you have some machinery and you're like actually making stuff, not some mm. of the final pieces that'll end up in these produced watches, but right. you're making stuff. Can you? Well, I, I, I own a, uh, I own a Bowley lathe. Two of them, in fact, one of them is broken though. Um, I you own, own two lathes. <laughs> yeah, but the one of them that's broken was shipped to me uh, in pieces, and I was just like, "What the hell?" Oh and I, I ended up getting my money back. However, they allowed me to keep the lathe because it, they said it couldn't be fixed. So I think there might be somebody out there who could fix it. But yeah. um, I have my lathes. I have my um, my rose engine machine, my, my guillotine machine, and then I have a uh, a straight line milling machine, um, both of which achieve uh, uh, guiche carvings just at, at um, different uh, different pinch points. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. one's up and down, one's circular, but um, you know, so so got those. Uh, you know, I, for a time I was working with a buddy of mine at a uh, factory where they had a bunch of CNC machines set up, so we would make base plates and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we would experiment with it, but. You've got to uh, be one of the only guys in this country with a rose engine. <laughs> like well, like one of I know th- two. There can't be more I, than five or six <laughs> of them in the country. All right, yeah. I, well, I know two. You know two of them. It's myself and then my buddy who sold me my machine. His name is Joshua Shapiro, and he's insane. He's one of the only people that I know that's still doing old school guiche by hand the way he's doing it in America. Um, he's and, up in the Bay Area, right? Uh Nah, he's in L.A. He's, he's in L.A.? He's okay. in L.A., yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a couple of folks in the Bay. I'm not sure if they got the the engine-turning machines, but uh, he, you know, he probably travels up there because we got to, you know, it's the connection is there is the Bay, then there's Santa Barbara, then there's L.A. was a few of us. Um, so I don't spend as, I don't get to spend as much time on my machines because with entertainment, most of my work is outside of state. You know, just like, like I said, next month I got to move. To, to New York for a few months. After that, may have another job lined up where I got to be gone for a whole year. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I get to it when I can, but most of my work is in practical theory. I'm always sketching. You ever say to yourself, I'm going to take a year. I'm going to take a year and I'm just going to spend the entire year with my hands on my machines. <laughs> um, I'm not going to... I'm, I'm not going to worry about acting. I'm not going to worry about directing. I'm not going to worry about painting. I'm not going to worry about drawing. Sounds like you have this fantasy, Jack. Bruh, Are we, uh, yeah. Please don't Please don't act on this. Nah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just keeping 100 with you, man. I can't afford to. Yeah. yeah. I've been, but I've there's been something actor. appealing about that on a certain level. I wish right? I could. But if I, your focus, like, if I could get to a point where I could take a year off from acting and come back into the game and know that there's still uh, demand for yeah, me, yeah. great, but I can't do that yet because my career is still growing. It's at a good place now, but it's it's to that place where it's almost yeah. there, and if you take your finger off the pulse for just a second, you know, it, it could die out on you. Yeah. So yeah. 
I can't really afford the time. That's why I engage other people who can do the job better than me to do the job. And I just keep pushing. Plus, I mean, acting is how I earn my bones. So, like, I can't afford this financially without right. acting. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. you know what I mean? I'll be living in a closet, you know, which is me and <laughs> With my your rose yeah. And, yeah. But eventually I want to get to a place where I can be comfortable enough to say, yeah, I am going to take, you know, at least like nine months to a year and just I mean, it's nice to this. It's nice to have the option, isn't it? I mean, and yeah. I, I mean, obviously, it's, it's not as if you don't find acting and directing creatively fulfilling. I mean... Well, the difference is I've been doing it for so long that it's at a place where now it's more comfortable than than the watch business because the watch business is in such a, 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 a state of infancy that yeah. it does need so much more work and so much more hustle and 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 help. You know, acting yeah. right now still need the hustle, but I'm at a place where you know people can guarantee or assure themselves on the work that I've done based on what, what I've done in the past. I've proven myself in, in many varying stages in, in acting. I haven't yet with watchmaking, so that's why I need so much more hustle. But yeah. I love them both equally. I, I would never, I can't seemingly quantify more love for one than the other, but um, I just know that, you know, it's like you got... I would imagine I'm not a parent yet, but you know, I see my moms do it, and you know, I would imagine it's like you have, you know, a grown child, and then you got a little five year old. That grown child is off to college. You still gonna worry, but you don't have to worry as much because you know what you're gonna take care of yourself. But that little five year old, it's going, it's gonna eat up some some time and energy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right now, you know, this this watch brand is is my little five year old. Yeah. When uh, when do you think we're gonna see? The first watches available for sale that say Aldous Hodge on I hope tomorrow. I don't know. <laughs> um, so, look, it's uh, 2019. I plan a capital raise. And if, uh, actually, I'll say, knock on wood, when I am successful, I will begin production then. And most likely, it should only take me two to two and a half years of, of uh, R&D time and, and, and full-on production for completion. So, I'm hoping, uh, hoping, I'm hoping um, that I can debut... 2022? 2021, like late 2021, um, at the earliest. Mm -hmm. But uh, it all depends on, like I said, just li lining up the financing, which uh, I'm ready to go. So, um, but, you're, but you're viewing this as a, as a long term thing. Like you're oh, not, you don't want to just push something out the door. Well, that's why I've been taking so long now. I, I could have put my, my own personal, because I've been self-funded up to this point, but now that I need to step up to the next level, I do need the financial capital for yeah. you know expansion. But for what I've done before, if I wanted to push a, a mass-produced piece to market that didn't have emphasis on hand polishing, finishing, and if I was using a prefabricated movement, I could have been to market already. I could have produced a watch that could sell maybe... 500 to a thousand or even a watch that hits the two thousand to five thousand dollar market and and i mean that not i'm not saying the financial terms in, in terms of actual value but what it i'm cost i'm thinking as an engineer in, in in terms of what it costs to make that um i could have been to the market now right but what right. i want to do the reason i haven't done that is because i say look i can do that but that company was is only going to last maybe if if anything, five years, because I'm not going to love it. And I yeah. can't g 
give people something that I don't love. I want to make what I want to make. I design a very particular way because when I came into the game, you know, I started studying. Well, I studied Groove Force because of the fact that I could see the gears, so I could count what was what, and I could see how everything's were, uh, how everything was associated. And then I studied Breguet. I studied uh, Francois Paul Jean. You know, those were kind of my guys. I studied George Daniels and what he did in terms of his movements. So. I think about watches in a very particular way, and, and these guys are my influences. So when I design watches, I want to, you know, I can tell you exactly what I feel makes a George Daniels significant or a Grubel Forcey or an F.P. Jorn. And then I look at the histories and I see what they've done. Now, granted, they're all, you know, have fabulous watchmaking histories, which got them to that point. I don't have that history, but I want to make what I want to make. And that is going to take time, patience, extra resources. And I would rather put that effort there because it's going to take an equal amount of effort to do something that is mass produced even at a subpar level of quality it's going to take as much effort there and i'd rather put it where i want to be happy because yeah. i want to build something that is going to outlive me yeah i mean that makes complete sense yeah. i mean you mentioned a couple of guys in there you know jorn triple yeah. are these the kind of brands that you are modeling yourself off of and that not just in terms of the 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 mechanics of the watchmaking, but mm. in terms of the kind of like structure of the brand, the sort of message you want to send, the kind of like, um, I guess, brand attitude and brand perspective? Well, I, I don't want to misconstrue my message or confuse people when I say, uh, I don't look at any particular brand and say, I want to be them. I know right. that's not what you're asking, but I, you know, just for the audience, I, I, I don't say that, okay, one day my brand is going to be like this, da 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 da. I'm saying that I look at certain brands for what they've done well in the market space, and I want to develop a brand that does that has that resounding effect, but my way. So I would sit. Um, I don't believe a, 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 in, in competition in the space either, because I think that, you know, for me, like I love certain things. When I can afford them, I will get them. You know, if you put uh, a Philip Dufour simplicity in front of me, and then you put. Uh, uh, F.B. Jorn, Tobion Sovereign, and then you put uh, Kari Voutelain and Vinked 8, and you say, well, pick one, choose one. If I can buy them all, I'm getting them all. And, if I, <laughs> and, and the thing is, if I can't get them all, I'm going to strategize to work to a place where I can get them all because I have a healthy respect for them all, but there's nothing uh, uh, competitively discernible there. I'm not going to say, well, this is better than this because of da da da. I'm going to say, this is great because of this. This is great because of that. And, you know, so yeah. I don't find myself being in competition against anybody. However, I would be, I would sit somewhere comfortably between, somewhere between uh, FP Jorn and Grubel Forcey. That's a, that's a pretty good place to be sitting. <laughs> well, I, I hope that my, um, my designs are are good enough to demand that uh, semblance of uh, respect. So you know, I'm working at that. Daily. I've got to say, having seen you know the renderings you just showed us in the the sketchbook, I think nah. uh, I think people are in in for a treat. It's, uh, it's a shame <laughs> we can't you, show them more now. But uh, you, yeah. yeah, we wouldn't. I mean, obviously, you know, we wouldn't want to, nor would you want to give anything away because uh, you know why 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 ruin the surprise when you've planned for it and worked for it for so long? Yeah. But man, it's gonna be interesting. Well, a part of it also is being able to you know not not exposing it for the world to see, just because for whomever does uh, snatch up the you know that first collection, I want to be able to give them. Um, 
something a bit more personal with the experience. So if you're going to be able to get that for the first time and you want to show the world, I want you as the collector to be able to have a piece of that experience. Mm -hmm. Of course, I'm going to, you know, when it's done, I'm going to market it. But, you know, I want the collector to be able to enjoy some of that. Oh, hey, what is that on your wrist? Right. Let me tell you about it. Right. You know what I mean? And that's how you build a community, right? Like it ends mm-hmm. up not just being a product that a, a handful of people buy. You you really build a dedicated collector base like yeah, a lot of these, these people, modern brands you give, have done. You give, you give people a story to tell. Right, yeah, exactly. Well, like I, I don't see myself exceeding uh, – well, let me not be irresponsible and give hard numbers, but I, I don't think that I would be a very large brand in terms of output. I'm going to be a micro boutique brand, you know. We'd be lucky if we made 100 watches a year, probably closer to 50, um, you know, in terms of the goal. Um, I, I do – want to mitigate my numbers specifically to manage well to develop and manage my customer relationships because i do want to create a a, a community um i would like to be able to manage these relationships well into um you know well into the maturation of the brand and then ultimately with my demise and when whoever takes over my kids or my kids kids or whatever I want them talking to the grandkids of my collectors, you know. So how do you cultivate that? There has to be some sort of personal relationship there. And then however the brand spreads out in terms of influence, I can't control that, but I do hope it catches wildfire, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, spreads all over. <laughs> so we're going to get kicked out of the studio in a couple minutes, but... Uh, like that, I'm staying. I know, I'm it's here. a shame. I feel like we can keep this conversation going for another hour, but... Uh, we end every show. We ask a couple kind of like quick lightning round uh, questions. That's good, and then man. We'll do our cultural recommendations and hopefully yeah, get out of here before get we get thrown out of the way, street. By the way, sorry for the uh, uh, profanity for the kitties and the ladies out there. It's Pardon right, me. I'm right. a gentleman, I swear. <laughs> uh, first question is, what's a watch you've seen recently that really caught your eye that you just can't stop thinking about? Daniel Roth, Petrol Calendar. Perfect. What's, uh, what's the best place you've traveled in the last year? Italy. Uh, we went to Rome, Venice, Florence. I can't say which one is my favorite. I like something about each one of those places. Perfect. What's, uh, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given and who gave it to you? My mother. Uh, she said, as a young child, she said they can take anything in this world away except for what you know. Meaning that all your possessions, all your whatever you have, that can be taken away. However, when you educate yourself and you learn what you need to learn, you can always gain or acquire or build back up. So learn as much as you can to accomplish everything. And when somebody takes your worldly possessions away, they have not taken away your value or your power. Your power is in what you know. Perfect. And do you have any guilty pleasures? Um, solitude. I love being alone um it i'm alone with my thoughts i like to design alone I, you know i go sit in the corner and, and sit in the back room and I'll, i'm ducked out hiding and uh it's not good because i need to give more time and attention to my friends who love me to my family to, you know my family we, we're very close we spend all the time together but you know to, you know to my to my missus and and you know it's like i i do think it's necessary to have time alone but um, I think I may also love it a bit too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll close things off with a cultural recommendation. We always have have everybody kind of give something people should check out when they're done listening. So it can be a, a book, it can be a movie, mm. it can be a place to go. 
What, uh, what should people go take a look at when I they're done? I can't recommend a film because I'm going to be hella biased right now. Just You're right allowed. Now. You can plug. You can plug something. Well, shoot. Um, there happen to be three movies coming out next year that just <laughs> I I think they're awesome. I mean, there's I think one, they're going to be good. You know, there's a movie called Brian Banks that I think everybody should see, and then there's a movie called Clemency that's you know if you're going to be in Sundance, it'll be there. And then uh, there's a movie called What Men Want that's coming out February eighth. You might want to go check it out with your sweetheart. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, you know, just just these little things. You know, what I mean, it just happen to be there. Um, in terms of a, a book. Well, this might be a little heavy. I don't know, but I'm I'm reading it anyway. And I, I'm going to put it out there. Uh, there's a book that I'm reading um, by Chancellor Williams, uh, written over 50 years ago, I believe. Uh, well, he did his research over 50 years ago, uh, called "The Destruction of Black Civilization." And the reason that I started reading it was because I look at the influence uh, of you know black culture and and of course in these times, and I'm like, we have influence so many things we are very small we're not the dominant percentage of of people in this country however we command one of the largest spending percentages in this country Uh, we influence so many things when it comes to finances when it comes to you know culture music television arts uh, uh, athletics you know and and why don't we reserve or retain that power um financially or, or, or even uh, influentially, you know, we, we are seen as less than and subpar. And this book I picked up just because it was, you know, it, sir, it helped answer some of those questions of how we even got to this point um, with invasions, you know, colonization, things like that. So it's, it's much more educational and actually more interesting than I'm making it sound. It's, you know, I'm probably making it sound all dreary and drab, but, you know, it's, it's one of those where, you know, growing up in, in school as a kid, the history was not there for me because uh, it just wasn't written. Yet, you know, I got to learn about English history and I got to learn about uh, Asian history, but I don't learn about African history. I'm like, the hell is going on, right? So, you know, just educating myself. And I think it's quite an interesting book. It's, it's um, man, it, it explains a lot about why things are the way they are. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. look, if you go to Italy, you'll see Egyptian obelisks staying at the town centers all over, in Rome, all over. And then you forget that there's an obelisk standing in Washington, D.C. <laughs> You're like, where did this come from? <laughs> Why is there a pyramid on the dollar? Like, do the research. It's there. You'll see where it came from. But um, it's an effort to educate myself in order to educate other people on how mm, my culture, you know, should be respected and should be included in the identity of American culture. So, you know, just trying to trying to keep myself up. So when somebody has some some mess to say, I'm like, hey, bro, let me talk to you. You know, um, no, nah, I just I just like to uh, keep the facts going. So, again, it's you know, like my mom said, it can take everything away from you except for what you know. And as of late, it seems like people have been trying to take a lot away. I swear I'm, I'm a much happier person than I sound. I swear. <laughs> Jack, how about you? What are you recommending? Uh, well, uh, the last time uh, you had me on the podcast, I recommended a giant shark movie. Mm-hmm. So, uh, talking about Sharknado? Or no, The Meg. No, The Meg. The Meg. Yes, oh, dude. man. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, I should, I should, maybe I should just do that again. No, you know what? Every uh, episode, Jack just recommends just, The just Meg. Just go see The Meg. Go see The Meg. It's, yeah. got, it's a love story. <laughs> it actually is kind of a love story. That's that's the subtext. 
Well, um, Jason Statham and the shark. Well, <laughs> I mean, there's, you know what? There's, there's a lot of possible uh, readings. You know, uh, it's what my uh, lit true. crit friends uh, call a multivalent uh, uh-huh. presentation. Um, but okay. speaking of speaking of history, I, I actually just finished uh, what was almost a year long project. Uh, I finally finished reading all five volumes of Gibbons, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, uh, uh, which was really wild to read. It's considered, you know, by it's sort of generally considered to be the first piece of real, like, quote-unquote, modern historical writing because it was all based on primary sources, right. um, which nobody had ever really done before. And the most amazing, which it sounds super dry, but the amazing thing about it is, uh, like, all of these people, you know, you realize that these people were you know, human beings, Scipio Africanus and, you know, uh, Tiberius. I mean, you know, all of these emperors. Most people don't realize that Africa was named after Scipio Africanus. Because, yeah. yeah. Um, To your point. Yeah. To your point. (laughs) And then you find out why. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, it's like, and it made me realize, I mean, uh, you know, the Roman Empire was the Roman Empire, but it mm. did not take the actions of too many really horrible people mm. to uh, burn the whole thing down. And it just made, it, it, it made me realize a lot of things, but one of them was the, you know, um, just the notion of, and you were talking about this earlier, uh, mm. you know, like sort of uh, us having a sense of custodianship about what we do rather mm. than a sense of personal, personal promotion and ownership. And if there's right. an antidote to the, to the to, you know, to the kind of um, self-serving mentality that really can destroy uh, an empire and cause us to lose uh, an amazing part of our cultural heritage, I think it's realizing that we actually do have, um, we're, we're, we're custodians of things and we need to, yeah. we need to bear that in mind. Yeah. How about you, Stephen? So... I'm going to actually plug something uh, Aldis's. Plug, plug, plug. Uh, so this wasn't my plan coming into this episode, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to go back and rewatch Friday Night Lights, man. Oh, I, man. Uh, I dig it. Thank you. I, 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 grew, I, up in, I grew up in yeah, Texas. Yeah. Uh, oh, what part? Uh, Austin. Oh, so, so a little yeah. bit different. But, yeah. uh, okay. We shot in Austin. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So actually the uh, the like malt shop, the uh, Alamo Freeze, is that the name? Something like that. I something like look, that was a... Was a Dairy Queen like three blocks from my high school, <laughs> and you could tell when Friday Night Lights was shooting because they literally switched the entire sign out. Yeah. So sometimes you'd like drive by for lunch on Monday morning or like Monday afternoon, you'd go to pick up lunch, and you'd realize they'd been shooting over the weekend because they hadn't switched the sign back to a Dairy Queen sign. Yeah. Uh, and you'd be like, "Where the hell did the Dairy Queen go?" But uh, yeah, I just it's it's one of those things that I watched it when it was originally on. I watched it again maybe five years ago with my my wife. Uh, I got to go back and rewatch it. It's just it's an amazing piece of television and if you haven't seen it, uh it's great. It's it's so engrossing and it's such good storytelling. Soundtrack is unbelievable. It's uh, soundtracked by Explosions in the Sky, which is a band I love. Yeah. Um yeah, great it's just an, for a band. It's an unbelievable band. Um but yeah, it's just a great great piece of TV and and something that I think is something we're going to look back on in, you know, like 50 years and we keep saying we're in a golden age of television. I think that's going to be one of the pieces of television that really stands stands the test of time. There you go, Texas forever. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you guys for for doing this. I know it's been a long day for both of you, uh, and it's not over yet. We're off to a, a dinner, but yeah, uh, free food, man. I'm not going to be mad at you. <laughs> Perfect. No, no, no. I think either. we'll probably keep this conversation going in the car over there. Yeah. But uh, yeah. yeah, we'll have to have you back uh, sometime soon. This was awesome, man. Hopefully, when I'm back, I have a watch to show you. I would I love mean... that. <laughs> Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you, man.
This week's episode was recorded at Mirror Tone Studios in New York City and was produced and edited by Grayson Corhonan. Please remember to subscribe and rate the show. It really does make a difference. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.